Hello, I'm Felix, and welcome to You Gotta Hack That, the podcast all about the security behind the Internet of Things. In this episode, I'm going to talk to you about occupancy sensors. Have you ever looked at a cityscape at night and thought, surely all those offices don't have people in them right now? Well, in the early days of office towers, there wasn't really any practical way of turning the lights off when nobody was in, especially for large open plan offices. This was hugely wasteful, and thankfully, we have better ways of working now. Modern systems have a variety of ways to detect people being present and turn lights on and off as needed. To do this, they use occupancy sensors. These sensors feed their data into a system, such as a building management system or BMS. I've talked about BMS before, and so if you want to learn more about the security of those, go back to that episode and have a re-listen. It's well worth it. Loads of actions are possible as a result of the occupancy data, including within security alarms, heating, ventilation and air conditioning or HVAC systems, and obviously lighting systems. Sensors are created to fit their intended environment, and that means different communications technologies, depending on what's required of where they are. You'll find sensors that can connect wirelessly and via wires, and over those mediums, then you'll find lots of different protocols, so like ZigBee or LoRaWAN or Ethernet or RS-232. In my head, there are three different kind of categories of sensors, and this ranges from the, the complexity of those sensors. So at the top end, you've got the complex and requires quite a bit of computation of the, the signal that's received to be able to make any sense of it. And in this category, you'd perhaps have noise sensors and video sensors. And so the noise, for instance, you'd have to be able to identify that the noise you're hearing is in fact from a person rather than just the humming of a, a background bit of machinery or perhaps a cat walked past or something like that and meowed. Whilst the video has the same kind of principles, but potentially quite a bit more processing on top of that because it's uh, a much denser information format. You then have primitive, but sensors that also require like a reflection signal or a probe signal. So in this category, you'd have ultrasonic and microwave, which work in quite similar ways. They send out a, a signal in that those RF protocols and then therefore... Uh, get a reflection and they take that and and then analyze it uh, working out whether or not that has changed from what it was previously whatever its baseline is and similarly you get some slightly more simplistic but require that kind of probe signal anyway the the laser or active infrared sensors so lasers if you cut a laser uh, from being received at the other side of a like a two-part thing say you walked through uh, a laser gate then that would act as an occupancy sensor because you know that something has passed through that there the same applies for the active infrared, although that happens to be used more on those wavy hand, I've got the force kind of sensors where you want to press a button but don't have to physically touch it. That's uh, infrared beam being shone onto your hand, and if it is reflected, then it's considered that you have pressed, in quotes, the button. You then got the very primitive sensors, and these are the ones that just take readings from the environment they're in. And examples of these would be those magnetic or reed switches for, for windows and doors, or perhaps heat, humidity, or CO2, um, as well as passive infrared, also known as PIRs. Today, I'm going to talk to you about the PIRs in particular, because whilst they've been around for ages, they feel like a, a slightly nebulous concept. You know, people don't quite understand how they work unless they happen to be in the industry. In principle, these devices are pretty simple. They detect a change in infrared radiation within the environment, and that uh, is it. 
most PIRs are based upon pyroelectric components, but there's quite a few different mechanisms for doing the same thing. They just happen to be the most common. Typically, a pyroelectric component is a crystal alloy blend. And whilst that in itself, you know, from a material science point of view is is super complex and, and very clever, the actual kind of operational elements of this are really, really simple. What happens is the infrared radiation hits that alloy, that blend, and it changes the resistance within that. So what that means is you put a current through it, and if the voltage goes up, then you've got a bit of a signal change, or if it goes down for that matter. To make this more than just an infrared-based resistor, um, you need to have two or more of these pyroelectric components next to each other. The components are connected to a differential amplifier. This then makes a signal appear when a source of infrared passes across the line of sight of the sensor. The differential amplifier is essentially a way to make those two pieces have zero signal when there is no change, no delta in what's being received. Because what you don't want is to have a background radiation, which is in everything, by the way. Everything emits a bit of IR, except if it's at uh, absolute zero. So what you need is for there to be a delta, a change, and that differential amplifier is, is what creates that. To make this work well, you also need a lens to focus the infrared and this can be achieved with a Fresnel lens. It's actually spelt Fresnel, but it was a French guy who came up with them. So he has uh, Fresnel as the name. On the surface, these lenses look like a load of concentric circles. But when you take a cross section of that, what you actually spot is that each of those circles has an angle to them that's different. And what this is effectively doing is pointing all of that infrared at a particular location, so it's it's focused, it's uh, it's much stronger. And you need it to be a bit stronger to be able to, to give a clear signal rather than just a kind of a gentle uh, blip on a graph. You want a quite a big, start, sharp point. You'll also have spotted that the most recent lenses on PIRs include multiple offset Fresnel lenses. This makes the sensors far more sensitive as the offsets focus IR energy from different areas of the space in front of the sensor. Now that's not sensitive in terms of like how little an amount it can get away with. It's more that it triggers on a, a broader spectrum of places in front of it. So it's kind of like having a, uh, a, uh, a fly's eye. You can see lots of things at the same time because it's not just a single point that you're looking at. It's not a single focused item. That's clearly quite useful when it comes to like alarm sensors or occupancy sensors in particular, because what you want is to know, is there anybody in this entire space, not just directly in front of me? So why would you bother hacking a PIR or any occupancy sensor for that matter? Well, occupancy sensors get used for intruder alarms. So if you can hack into an alarm, you have a greater chance of not getting detected by uh, you know, an alarm system when you're being an intruder. There are other edge cases too, such as not wanting any evidence that someone was present at a particular time. Say you were um, trying to take an action and you wanted to be able to deny it later on, not just because you were not supposed to be there, but because you were supposed to be there, uh, unlike an intruder, then perhaps actually being able to influence that sensor would be really useful. Attackers might also want to just degrade the trust in that connected system. And then what better way is there to do this, then make false positives and false negatives occur. 
That way, whoever's looking after the alarm system will get frustrated with it and, and potentially stop using it or at least stop trusting it when it does go off. So let's talk about the vulnerabilities in uh, the PIRs. Well, as it happens, you can just simply block the IR radiation. Um, and you can do that by using a material as a, a sort of a shield that doesn't permit IR radiation to pass through it. Would you believe it? Glass plate tends to be pretty good at blocking IR radiation. And so if you were to get a piece of glass up to the same ambient temperature as the rest of the room and then put it in front of the sensor, the theory being that you would be able to walk in in front of that as much as you like, wave your hands around, do a dance, and it still wouldn't pick you up. That's kind of interesting, but it's a bit classic. You can also do some slightly more sophisticated angles on this as well, which would be things like saturating the sensor. Ultimately, these things are like resistors. So if you are heating them up or cooling them down using infrared radiation, um, then you will get to a point where there is nowhere else for the component to go. It won't be able to make the resistance higher or lower because it's already at the extreme. If you do that, then you'd be able to then add extra to the environment or take it away from the environment, if that so applies, and it wouldn't have any impact on the sensor because it's already at those extremes. Now, doing this in a practical way would be a bit on the slow side. You'd have to point something that was emitting IR at the sensor and then slowly bring that up to a point where both sides of the pyroelectric components, uh, the, of both sides of that differential amplifier were at the same level and slowly bring it up to the saturation point or maybe beyond. Now that might risk burning out the sensor if you if you kept it up there too high or took it too far beyond its normal range. However, in a practical sense, that would stop it from working. As a kid, I admit that one of the things I did with some of my mates was mess around with PIR sensors. Now, this is less capable than it used to be, but you still could, in theory, move very slowly in front of the PIR. The reason for this is because what you're doing is generating a small signal that won't be enough of a voltage to trigger an action, to, to make it actually report that there is a problem. In theory, if you army crawl really slowly and past it, then that would still be the case. However, because of those multi-fresnel lenses, you'd have to army crawl across the entire room, not just the spot that it was looking at and paying attention to. Obviously, as well, these things are pretty primitive. So if you were able to tamper with the communications mechanism, you know, if it's a if it's a cable that's simply like uh, a voltage going back to something else that is a control box and and, uh, and the control box was the one analyzing the signal and making the decisions about whether it's triggered, then you could simply just interfere with that cable, either by cutting it or changing the voltage that's there or something else to stop it from being, uh, you know, effectively a sensor anymore. A lot of IoT and ICS systems rely on sensors to perform tasks or trigger actions. This example of these PIRs is a great reminder that actually sensors are generally very primitive devices, which are then connected to complex systems. If you can trick a sensor into sending a signal or preventing it from sending a signal, then the rest of the system is unlikely to know it has been manipulated. This would be the classic garbage in, garbage out scenario where if you put rubbish into a system, you know, rubbish data in there, then it's going to do all of its working and send back garbage because, well, it started with rubbish. How on earth is it supposed to get anything better? 
Today, this discussion has been focused upon PIRs, but as a quick note here, you should know that vulnerabilities don't just exist in the primitive sensors. For example, it's possible to prevent camera-based sensors from recognizing people by wearing specially placed makeup. Now, if you were to see these people, you know, it, in the flesh, as it were, then you'd immediately go, well, that person's got weird makeup on because they tend to be like big black stripes in, in key places on your face to make it look like your face isn't a face. So what do I think? Well, sensors are vital in all aspects of urban life, whether that be your car, whether that be you know the power plant down the road or your lift, your lighting sensors at uh, your office block. But it must be remembered that the data they provide should be treated with the caution it deserves. Each use case must be considered and its context needs to detect how much reliance is placed on each available data point. It might be wise to consider the misquoted, misattributed and almost certainly misunderstood phrase, trust but verify. That's a Russian maxim that was uh, around a lot during the Cold War, but it kind of applies a lot to cybersecurity. You need to think about that phrase when you're considering what the cybersecurity needs of the sensors you've employed are. Hopefully, you'll be able to then come up with something that is suitable and either double-check it with extra sensors, which will make it more difficult for an attacker to take advantage, or you'll maybe be able to deal with faults and failures in another stage within the application and the system as a whole. Thanks for listening. I hope you have enjoyed the show. Please give the show a rating or review in your podcast app. Tweet about it, post it somewhere, stick it on LinkedIn. We'd really appreciate it. To talk to us about any aspect of the show, suggest a future topic, or to ask questions about IoT security, please get in touch. You can do this via email on helpme at yg.ht with at gotta underscore hack on Twitter or by searching you gotta hack that on LinkedIn.